0: Fathers, we turn now this evening to study Your Word. We pray again for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit, that He would come and bless us as we finish Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian Christians. Lord, open this Word to us, apply it to our hearts, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through. 28. Uh, we began to look at this passage last week, but noted there was just a little too much in it for one sermon, and so we stretched it out to, to two. We'll begin uh, next week to look at 2 Thessalonians. We're just going to continue on through Paul's uh, second letter. Uh, beginning next Sunday evening. But tonight, we're come to, to round out uh, our studies in First Thessalonians. And so, 1 Thessalonians 5, reading from verse 12, this is on page 988 of the church Bibles. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace uh, among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil." Well, as we noted uh, last Sunday evening as we began to look at this closing section uh, of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, just like many, most perhaps, of Paul's letters, it ends with an assortment of instructions and commands that can at first seem disjointed and unconnected. After the logical progression that we have seen Paul follow throughout this letter, this little assortment at the end can, I think, seem a a little strange to us. And this letter has been very logical, it's been clear and focused. It's, It's moved from that anchor of the letter right at the beginning, in which Paul expressed his confidence in the genuineness of the faith of his original audience. To then going on to help them really tease out the implications of what they believed uh, and how they were to act in light of that belief. That's the rough structure of this letter. There's a a flow to it, there's a logic to it. But as we came to verse 12 last week, we we admitted that, that the letter suddenly seems to speed up here as Paul brings this letter to a close, and it can, I think, seem a little messy. As we noted in these final verses, we have something like 15 different commands. And these commands can seem very unrelated to one another, and it can almost read as if there's an urgency here. We imagine that perhaps Paul saw the mailman walking up his path to collect his letter, and suddenly he had a scribble in all these things that he hadn't quite had time to do almost as if there's an urgency about the sending of this letter that has precluded a more in-depth treatment of these topics. And so Paul, not wanting to leave them out completely, quickly just adds them in here at the end. But as we noted last week, we know that it's not really what's going on here because that's not how Scripture works. But also when we, when we take some time to read through these last few verses at the end of this this book, we notice that it's not quite as messy as it first seems. And there is here also a distinct logic to what Paul chooses to end his letter with. Rather than being this assortment of final instructions as our ESV Bibles head this section, what we find is is really a discourse in three stages about the essential aspects of life within the local church. That's what Paul ends his letter with, is this discourse on life in the local church. Now, last week we looked at how Paul begins this section by tackling interpersonal relationships. First, he gives them the commands about how they should relate to their leaders, to the elders of the congregation. You remember know, Paul uses very strong language when he describes how the congregation should relate to the church leadership he tells them that they are to esteem their leaders very highly in love, that they are to respect those who labor among them. Right? These are, these are very high terms, terms that I hesitate to emphasize in preaching it, or, or even, you know, good elders would, emphasize to, uh, would, would be reluctant to emphasize when speaking with you because it almost seems not fitting. It almost seems too much, but, but Paul is emphatic here, that the leaders of the congregation are to be held in, in, in high regard, to be esteemed very highly in love. But you remember the flip side of that was that the work that Paul is describing these leaders doing is very hard work. The respectable leaders were those who poured themselves out for the good of the flock, those who literally broke a sweat as they labored amongst the the congregation. And so Paul begins by by saying within the congregation, within congregational life, this is to be an order that you have to obey. Leaders, your call is to to pour yourselves out for the good of this congregation. Congregation, your call is to honor and respect those leaders. Implication, you, you make it easy for them to do the work that they are called to do for you. But of course, Paul has then gone on to urge relationship, that relationships within the congregation itself be characterized by, by humility uh, and sacrifice. And that's where Paul went on and said that the disruptive uh, were not to be tolerated within the congregation. And you remember, we noted that our Bibles will say in verse 14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle. But that's really not a, a great translation, because when we think of idle, we think of lazy. But as our footnote says, it's perhaps better the disorderly or the disruptive. So what Paul is saying is don't tolerate the disruptive within the congregation. Don't tolerate those who, who love to foment division, who gossip and, and spread this, this corruption within the body. Instead, Paul painted a picture of a, of a congregation that is harmonious and unified, in which everyone is eager to serve everyone else. Right, in both of those sections, what Paul is really just describing is a way of life that flows out of that genuineness of faith with which he began his letter. A life that is rooted in faith, hope, and love, he says, looks like this. Right, that's what he wants to end this letter with. That's what he wants to end this letter saying to this beloved congregation. When you understand just how much you have been loved by God in Christ, then you're quick to seek one another's welfare. You're quick to treat one another as we have been treated by God. But now, in this final subsection of this final section of this letter uh, that is dealing uh, with these essential aspects of life within the local church, in this final subsection, we see now Paul brings it down, and he brings this whole final section to land, and he explicitly anchors all of this in the gospel as he urges his readers to be committed to, the, to meeting together in public worship. And so, Paul, as he gives his instructions for public worship in these verses, tells his readers that their assemblies for worship are to be characterized by two things. They're to be focused on the Word of God and its practical application, and it is to be an expression of true spiritual fellowship. In other words, Paul says your congregational life together is to have as an essential aspect corporate worship, and that corporate worship must always have a distinctly vertical focus and a distinctly horizontal one. So Paul opens this final section by telling his readers to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, while giving thanks in all circumstances. Now that seems fine, but if we pull back just a little bit and we remember what these Thessalonians are being called to endure for the sake of Christ, we realize this can seem like a bit of a tall order. Right? Considering the, the persecution and the opposition that this congregation were still facing, this opposition that had been so strong that it had driven Paul himself out of the city, that persecution that was still raging around this little church, this call to rejoice uh, always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances, can, I think, seem maybe a little optimistic. But you understand what what Paul's doing here. He isn't just calling them to to smile through the pain. He's not Pollyanna-like calling them to play some kind of glad game in the midst of the storm that is raging around them. Instead, he's calling them to something far more profound and long-lasting. We tend to equate joy with happiness. We tend to do with joy the same thing that we do with love. In our culture, love is something that we have confined and reduced down to the realm of the feelings. When you ask somebody about who they love or why they love them, they tend to talk about a feeling, something that is coming from within, right? And we tend to do the same with joy, right? When we talk about joy, we associate it with the feeling of happiness. So, I'm joyful when I'm happy, when I have this feeling within me. But you understand that's how, how Scripture fundamentally defines these things or understands these things, right? In Scripture, love is, is not a feeling, it's, it's an action. Love is, is something that you do to somebody else, right? It is a way of relating to somebody else at your own expense. In the scriptural view of joy, joy is, is not so much a feeling as it is an intentional pursuit of peace a peace that flows out of our knowledge of the gospel. So, Greg Beale, the theologian, points out, he says, such joy is not primarily an emotional high consisting only of feelings. Rather, the focus is on an inner abiding attitude or disposition of taking pleasure in recognizing that whatever one encounters, including trials, is God's will. Therefore, to respond with joy in the midst of sufferings is to take pleasure in knowing that faithfully enduring such things pleases God. That's what we mean when we talk about joy, not a feeling of happiness. Paul isn't saying, despite all the terrible things that are happening to you, just be happy. Just smile through it. He's calling them to something that is a lot more substantial than that that He is calling them to to tie their, their disposition to what they know about the gospel, to anchor themselves in the truth of the gospel, so that as the storms rage around them, they will have this distinctly godly peace. That's what He's calling them to a peaceful understanding that all that they are facing is part of God's plan for their lives, that even their hardships and their difficulties are part of what God is calling them to endure for His glory and for their good. What Paul is calling his readers to here is what we find in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember the apostles are imprisoned by the high priest, and then they are beaten for the sake of Christ. And we read in Acts chapter 5 verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And you understand that's not some kind of masochistic delight in getting imprisoned and beaten up, right? They weren't coming out of this prison just skipping with delight. Oh, isn't it just wonderful what's just happened to us? Our bones of being broken or nearly been broken by getting beaten up, and wasn't that prison just awful? What a wonderful thing has happened to me. That's not what it means when it says that they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor, right? They, they, but what is being described is this deep joy that is rooted in the knowledge that even that suffering was not out of the control of God but had to be understood in the context of their intimate union with God through Christ. The knowledge that they were called by God to walk in their master's footsteps and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But how do we then, following Paul's command here, to rejoice and to give thanks in in all circumstances, how do we get to the point where this is our mindset? Because this, I think, can seem this still can seem like a bit of a tall order. We can tease it apart. We can understand the logic. But I don't know about you, it's, it's difficult for me to imagine getting to a point where there is that persistent joy. How do we get to the point where we can say honestly with Paul in Philippians 4 that we have learned in whatever situation we are to be content, to know how to be brought low, to know how to abound, In any and every circumstance to have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. How do we get to that point? Well, only by remembering that what we have received in Christ is far greater than anything this world can take from us, right? That's what Paul means in the verse that I stopped short of there in Philippians 4, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is that what he means, what he's talking about there is the knowledge that everything I have in Christ is greater than anything this world can take away from me. It's not about winning a sports game, right? Regardless of how many Christian schools have painted Philippians 4.13 on their faces before they've gone out, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about enduring trials because we have this joy that is anchored to our knowledge of all that we have received in Christ. The knowledge that the riches we have in heaven surpass anything that this world might confiscate. The knowledge that the eternal life we have in Christ makes this earthly life pale in comparison. The knowledge that the delights that are ours in Christ overwhelm the sorrows of life in this world. And we do that. We remember that, Paul goes on to say, by listening to the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God. Right? That's what Paul means when he says verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. And then verse 20, do not despise the prophecies. Right? What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about the public proclamation of the Word of God. John Stott writes, he says, Paul is saying, let the Holy Spirit speak to you through His Word and listen to His voice. Do not quench Him. And also let the Holy Spirit move you to respond to the Word in praise, prayer, and thanksgiving. Do not quench Him. If this congregation was to stand firm... If we are to stand firm, anchored, rooted in this joy that is tethered to our knowledge of Christ, then we are to gather together and listen to the voice of God as He speaks to us through the proclamation of His Word. You've heard me quote this so many times, but I think it is absolutely crucial. Westminster Shorter Catechism 89, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation right you ask the westminster divines how does god communicate with his people how does he call them out of their darkness into light how does he bring them to himself they say sometimes he'll do it through the reading of the word sometimes he'll do it privately But more normally, He does it through the public proclamation of the Word. It is preaching that God has appointed to call men out of darkness. But you ask Him, then, what is the, the main means? If that's the means of conversion, what's the main means of sanctification? And they say the preaching of the Word. Because that's where God comes and He speaks to His people and He builds them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto their salvation. Reading your Bible is important. Small group Bible studies are important, but there is a special power that is tied to the public proclamation of the the Word, to the prophesying, to the speaking forth of God's Word to His people. And you see, that's why this section undergirds and strengthens the other two subsections of this final part of this letter. Really, this this final subsection undergirds and strengthens the rest of the letter as a whole. If these Thessalonians were to stand strong against their external enemies, and if they were to stand strong against the internal struggles and doubts, they needed to come and listen to the voice of their God. If any Christian is to stand firm and pursue godliness and refrain from the temptations to evil that surround them, and they need the preaching of God's word they need God to speak to them through his word to remind them of the wonders of the gospel they need God by his spirit to sanctify them to refine them and purify their faith so that they so that we will be blameless at the coming of Christ and you understand everything that Paul is saying here he is saying you have to do it in community. You need to do it intentionally as part of a body of believers. That's why Paul adds in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. And then in verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, that last command, of course, loses something in cultural crossover, But in order to understand it, we have to understand that in this first-century context, kisses were a a common affectionate greeting for those with whom one had an an intimate or respectful relationship. They were a common form of affectionate greeting for family members and intimate friends and those who were objects of their respect. That's what makes Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss so deeply profound. It is the act of of utmost intimacy and respect that Judas chooses to be the act by which he betrays Jesus. And so, what what Paul is saying here in verse 26 in a culturally specific way is he is saying all of this is to be done within a a church community that is expressing its love for one another. And it is… it is fostering intentionally the bonds of brotherhood. This is not a loose collective of similarly-minded people. This is is a congregation that are pursuing one another, that are seeking to to encourage and edify and strengthen one another, that they are seeking to to demonstrate the communion of saints by, by seeking out this true fellowship with one another. And really, that's the the same thing that Paul is is urging in his command in verse 25 when he says, brothers, pray for us. Right? It's, It's a little more straightforward as Paul is urging them to commit themselves to public worship. He wants love for the brethren even outside of this congregation to be an essential mark of this congregation. And so, he wants them to be faithful in their prayers for absent brethren. He wants them to understand that being part of the communion of the saints means that they're not just some little sect to themselves, but are intentionally and meaningfully part of a larger body. In the opening of the letter, Paul has framed all of this in terms of a a catholicity of the church. Remember, he commended them uh, right at the beginning of the letter of how they had related to him and his companions, and how they had affected the other Christians throughout the entire region. But now Paul says he wants this to be a conscious part of their lives together as a church. He doesn't want any Lone Ranger Christians, which is why he is ending with this discourse on the corporate nature of the Christian life. But neither does he want any isolated congregation. He wants there to be a conscious and expressed love for the brethren that goes beyond this local congregation, a love and concern that is expressed in prayer. What Paul is saying in this final section, especially in this final subsection, is that corporate worship is is essential for our spiritual health and well-being. If we are to grow up in our faith, if we are to be sanctified, if we are to be refined, and if we are to be strengthened in our faith, then we need to be meeting together regularly in this loving fellowship, listening to the voice of our Heavenly Father and responding in joy and prayer. And that is true all of the time for all Christians. You cannot be a healthy Christian and not be part of a local church. But it is all the more true when we find ourselves in times of persecution and opposition. Those times, like the ones that these Thessalonians were facing, those are times when we have, I think, a particular temptation to withdraw. A particular temptation to to scatter. We think if, we, if we we're to stand firm in the face of this hostile world, then, then we need to be smart and we need to make sure that we're not grouping together where we can easily be found. Let us just all go and we'll worship at home and we'll be safe and secure. But Paul says, no. If you're to stand firm in the face of a hostile world, then the thing that you must be doing is meeting together to strengthen and encourage one another. Right? That's why Paul in Hebrews 10 writing to a church that is just as much, if not even more, suffering for the sake of Christ, he writes, "'Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another.'" and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right again, this is one of these situations. Why would Paul command the Hebrews to continue, to to, to not neglect meeting together? Because the temptation was to neglect meeting together. In fact, he says there are already some who have fallen foul of that temptation. But he says if you are to stand firm then you need to meet together, you need to just stir one another up to love and good works. You need to encourage one another. But right? it's just Ecclesiastes 4, isn't it? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. There is strength in number there's strength in gathering together in Christian community for worship to point one another back again and again to the fullness of the gospel. It is as we gather together in worship that God comes to sanctify His people, to refine us, to strengthen us, to equip us, to see, to see us as, uh, as we go through the storms of this world uh, around us. It is in corporate worship that that God comes and and helps us to behold the certainty of our hope, that as Paul said at length at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, the hope that Christ will return and He will rescue His people. To quote John Stott again, who's been a faithful guide through this letter, he says, looking back now over Paul's teaching about public worship, we see that it should always include two complementary elements. On the one hand, there should be rejoicing in the Lord, prayer, and giving of thanks. And on the other, listening to God's Word, read, expounded, and applied. For God speaks to His people through His Word, and they respond to Him in praise, prayer, and thanksgiving. That's the note that Paul wants to leave this congregation with. This isn't just a hastily put-together random assortment that needs to get crammed in before Paul misses the mailman. This isn't just housekeeping that Paul puts together at the end of his letter. Paul very intentionally leaves this congregation with a short and sharp discourse on the nature of the healthy Christian life. And he says that life is one that is lived together in worship, in which we seek to help one another to press on in our faith. In a world of division and hatred, in the face of a world of opposition, they and we need more than anything else to be a people who are worshiping together, with our hearts fixed on Christ, helping each other to hold fast and to press on. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these past few weeks in which you have brought us through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, Father, it has been good for us to sit and listen to you as you have spoken to us through this letter, as we have been called to lives of faithfulness to the gospel, as we have been called to lives that are characterized by faith, hope, and love. And as we end it now with this exhortation ringing in our ears to be a distinctly corporate people, we pray that for us present, and for our church as a whole, that You would cultivate this mindset, this heart set amongst us, that we would love gathering together as the Lord's people, that we would love to go to the Lord's house, uh, uh, that we would go, as the psalmist says, to the Lord's house they were calling, and with joy I went with them, and that we we would come together, not simply because we like each other, though we pray that that would be the case, but that we would come together knowing that we are profoundly joined together because of our shared salvation, coming together with a love and concern for one another, helping each other to press on, to encourage one another, and to remind one another of the, the treasures of the gospel. Father, bless this word to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.